The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and today I'm going to be talking about a question and a topic that's been on my mind for decades at this point. I'm going to ask the question, what would it take to make our relationships work? Now, when I think about this question, I'm thinking specifically about long-term romantic or sexual relationships. I want to name that up front as my primary focus. However, I think most of the things that we'll uncover as we explore this topic are relevant to many other types of relationships and many other relationship styles. So even though we're focusing on this specific uh, niche of relationship, that being the long-term romantic or sexual partner, I think the truths we'll uncover will be applicable to many different styles. But why do I want to talk about this at all? Well, I recall growing up in an environment in which long-term monogamous partnership was not only the norm, but the goal. In my religious tradition, being married and staying married forever was a sign that you were living right. It was a a sign that you were blessed by God and living the life you were supposed to live. I remember being taught that God created men and women to be in relationship together. I remember being taught that there was a special person somewhere out there in the world that God had made just for me and that God would help me find them at some point. I remember being told that God created men and women to be together. I remember being told and believing not only that long-term marriage was the goal and the expectation, but I also recall sitting through different sermons and lessons and recognizing that there was also a series of unspoken norms and assumptions about what those long-term partnerships should look like, sound like, and feel like. And that That is actually what I want us to explore today more than anything else. I want us to take a look at the assumptions that we hold around long-term partnerships. I want us to examine how we think they should look and feel. Along the way, I think we'll also begin to ask some of those same questions about different types of relationships in our lives because none of us exist in a vacuum. And if we begin exploring and unpacking our assumptions about long-term romantic relationships and sexual partnerships, I think we're also going to inevitably end up talking about our norms and assumptions for platonic friendships, for the relationships we have with our children or our nieces and nephews, or for the relationships we have with co-workers or extended family members and so on and so on. What I'm saying is that the end goal is for us to begin to open up and get curious about the assumptions that we're carrying with us into any relationship. And to do this, we're going to use the norms we have around long-term romantic partnerships as a starting point. So if that sounds even remotely interesting to you, then join me as we explore the question, what would it take to make our relationships work? Okay, so let's start with the assumptions we're holding about long-term partnerships and relationships. As I was growing up, I had very clear thoughts and ideas about what should or shouldn't take place or how a relationship should and shouldn't look. And those attitudes and thoughts were informed and reinforced by not only the adults around me, but by the religious community that I came up in. 
So I'm going to take a, a few minutes and just talk through some of the most common norms and expectations that I picked up upon, and we'll see what resonates with you. Number one, as I said earlier, I believed that we were designed for marriage unless God called us to celibacy. And, and this one is pretty self-explanatory, I think, but basically the idea is that if you are a single person, the expectation was that you should want to and be trying to be in a relationship so that you can get married. Like marriage was the ultimate goal. It was God's purpose, God's plan for most of our lives with one clear exception. And the exception being those whom God was calling to a life of celibacy. So basically you got married or you had a special calling in which case you were intended to remain celibate and single for your entire life. And I got to be honest, at face value, that feels like a incredibly heavy burden to place upon anyone. And I'm not knocking those that have a deep desire or an expectation that they'll get married. And I'm definitely not knocking anyone who feels called to a life of celibacy. I think, you know, both of those things can be completely true and legitimate. What I am calling into question, though, is creating a situation in which those are the two most holy, most sacred options for thinking about and exploring your own desire for companionship or partnership. I think it's problematic that we would limit it to those two binary options, and it doesn't seem healthy to me. Secondly, we have this idea that marriage is and should be between one man and one woman. Now, this is obviously problematic for a variety of very well-documented reasons. We know that more than just men and women exist as, as a starting point, right? We have people that identify as non-binary or as transgender. Gender is uh, a social construct in much the same way that race is, and your gender identity exists on a spectrum. It's not an either-or. So this notion that marriage is meant for a man and a woman is based in very traditional, some might even say archaic understanding of what gender is or isn't today. And it automatically excludes a lot of people. It alienates those that are in or desire to be in same-sex relationships and partnerships. It automatically excludes or alienates those that desire to be in relationships that are non-monogamous. And let me pause here because you may or may not be familiar with this term non-monogamy. Um, so I'll unpack it a little bit for you. So a traditional understanding of long-term relationships, or at least the understanding that I grew up with, is what we would call serial monogamy. That simply means that you are in one relationship with one person at a time. Whereas historical monogamy means that you're just in one relationship for your entire life, right? But that's not how we practice monogamy in today's day and age. You're not in uh, a relationship with one person for your entire life. Typically, here in the U.S. especially, you might date someone, potentially have a long-term partner when you're in your late teens or early 20s or cycle through a few long-term partners before you settle on someone and decide to get married or start living together. And maybe you split up or maybe you get divorced and then you connect with someone else, right? We have what we call serial monogamy, meaning that you are with one person, but you're with one person at a time instead of just one person forever, okay? So what we practice here in the U.S. is referred to as serial monogamy. All right, so if what we're practicing is serial monogamy, then an additional option and another form of relationship that, that some people do practice, indeed many people do practice, is called ethical non-monogamy. 
Now, ethical non-monogamy is a broad term that encompasses many different relationship styles, but at its core, it just means that you're not monogamous and everyone involved is okay with it. Now, maybe you're saying, yo, Ben, that sounds a lot like cheating, my guy. And my response is, well, it's not, okay? That's why it's called ethical non-monogamy as opposed to unethical non-monogamy. Because you can have non-monogamy that isn't ethical. People do this all the time. If you're married and you're assumed to be in a monogamous relationship with your life partner being your only sexual partner, but you step out and have an affair with someone, well, that is cheating. And that is unethical because your partner didn't consent to this, right? You didn't engage in conversation with them. So that's unethical non-monogamy. Ethical non-monogamy, however, is the condition in which you and your partner or partners would have conversations and communicate about what your boundaries are, what your desires are, what you need in the relationship, and then you would all agree and create a structure that works for you. And again, this can look hundreds of different ways depending upon the people involved, and I'm not going to do a deep dive into the weeds of it, but I do want to name that there are other ways of being in relationship outside of what is traditional for us. And and what's traditional and kind of standard in the U.S., especially in faith-based spaces, is serial monogamy. And serial monogamy is the norm that I grew up with. So the overall point I'm trying to make in this section is that the idea that marriage is meant to be just between a man and a woman really excludes not only people that might be engaged um, in non-heterosexual lifestyles, but it also excludes people that have decided that monogamy isn't really for them. Okay, next we have the idea that any sex or sexual contact outside of marriage is a sin. And this, if you grew up in any sort of evangelical or uh, fundamentalist Christian space, this probably is not new to you. It's pretty self-explanatory, and it was incredibly frustrating as a young adult, (laughs) I gotta tell you. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time unpacking it, y'all know what it is. But this next set of things are a bit more charged, I think both religiously and politically. First, there's the idea that men are the head of the household, just as Christ was the head of the church. And usually coupled along with that is the notion that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. And along with this comes some of the traditional gender norms and gender roles that I saw in relationships. So that might be the idea that women are meant to cook, clean, maintain the home, and provide most of the care for the children. And men are designed to go to work and provide for the physical and monetary needs of the family unit. And these concepts are often backed up by specific Bible verses. And in particular, people really love to quote Paul here, the Apostle Paul. Why? I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Um, I would argue we're cherry picking the text, but it really doesn't matter what I think, except that Actually, this is my podcast, so what I think matters a lot. So let's talk about the Apostle Paul. And because uh, this verse or these verses came up a lot in my own tradition, I'm going to go ahead and just read through the scripture that really pulls out and is most often quoted when we're talking about this idea of wives submitting to their husbands. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 31. So Ephesians 5. 22 through 31, and I think what I'm about to read comes from the NKJV. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I'm not going to exegete this text in any way, shape, or form, really. I think you can find plenty of people that have done that and are still doing it. So if you're looking for that, just do a Google search and you can probably find what you're looking for. But I do want to comment on two things. Number one is the idea that anyone should submit in a relationship. Now, uh, this will be controversial. I know that probably particularly on um, not only gender lines, but also generational lines. So I just want to name that up front. But personally, I, I'm not a fan of the idea that anyone needs to submit in a relationship. The language carries a lot of baggage for me, probably because of my religious context. So it's not language I would use or I would even put out um, to be considered in a relational context. And I think it's particularly problematic to say that wives or the women in this case should submit to their husbands or the men. And I think it's problematic because it seems to really play into historical patriarchal norms, meaning that our society by and large has been structured so that those who identify as men have more power and influence in society. And when you couple that with a religious belief system that says, if you're a woman, you need to submit to these people, then I think we're really opening the door for marginalization maybe even violence and the possibility, I guess it's not a possibility, the reality uh, that women can be treated as second-class citizens in their homes and in their communities. Now, if I'm going to be fair and give this a more generous interpretation, I would also have to note that there are those out there who say, yes, we believe that wives should submit to their husbands. However, we also focus just as much on verses 28 through 31, because we believe that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. And if you're loving your wife as much as you're loving yourself, then how can you oppress her? You won't marginalize her. You won't abuse her because you wouldn't do those things to yourself. And, you know, maybe there's something to that. I think it's possible to hold this belief system um, about gender-based hierarchy while creating an environment that feels loving and equitable and just for all involved. At least I can't say it's not possible. I, I know couples that I think more or less ascribe to this theological viewpoint, but seem to have fairly healthy and equal relationships. So I'm not saying it's not possible and I'm not condemning it in all circumstances. Again, if, if you enter into it and you're consenting partners and adults, cool, do you. What I am saying is that I think it's risky and I wonder what we're gaining by holding onto it. Not just the verses, but more importantly, to the interpretation that we've attached to those verses. Because look, quite frankly, it seems a little silly to me, right? All this seems a little silly to me because I believe the letter to the Ephesians was really a letter meant for the Ephesians. So by taking this letter that presumably the Apostle Paul wrote to a very specific 
church in a very specific context, both geographic and uh, temporal, as in a very specific point in time, and then extrapolating truths from that for everyone else forever, that just seems inappropriate. You know, it seems a bit a bit strange. And quite frankly, I think it leaves the door open for a lot of misunderstanding, and it closes us off to the revelation that might actually be necessary and important and fruitful for our current lives and lived context and experiences. Because, y'all, we're not living in the same context as the church in Ephesus at all. It's not the same time period. We don't have the same culture. We don't have the same customs. We don't have the same norms. It's not the same geography for most of us, unless you're listening to this in Ephesus. (laughs) You know, like, there's so much that's different. And so I can't help but wonder not only what we think we're gaining by applying wisdom that was meant for a small group of people some 2,000 years ago to our own lives, but I also wonder what we think we'll lose by allowing those words and those teachings to remain in their context so that we can seek out the truth we need for our own context. Like, What do we think we'll lose by doing that? All right, uh, let me get off my uh, soapbox here and keep us moving. The final few norms that I want to touch on that I held growing up were the idea that you can't have friends of the opposite sex, which was always a problem for me. I'm someone who's almost always had more female friends than male friends, and that's still largely true today. So the notion that if I was going to be in a long-term relationship with someone, and if I was going to love them, I'd have to leave, abandon, or just like distance myself from my female friends... It just never sat right with me and it didn't seem to align with who I am and how I exist as a person. And honestly, that's still largely true today. And the final concept I want to touch on is the idea that God doesn't like divorce, so you shouldn't get divorced. But if you do get divorced, don't remarry. Now, this one was a bit weird because I knew people, people close to me that had gotten divorced and remarried and they believed God had brought them together. So... I was confused about the logical hoops we were jumping through, but that aside, the general idea that I held on to was that you're really not supposed to get divorced unless there's abuse going on or maybe some cheating. So these are some of the norms that I grew up with and that I kind of had attached to my own understandings of long-term relationships. And some of them might sound better or worse to you than others, but at the end of the day, we need to talk about why these things don't quite work. Well, first and foremost, I think one of the reasons this doesn't work is because it's presented as either the only or the best way to do relationships. And if I say nothing else today, please, please hear this because it's literally the entire point of the episode. You could stop listening after this and I'd be all right. What I need you to know is that there is not one right way to be in a long-term romantic or sexual relationship. There are ways that might feel more healthy for you or that might work better for your context and life circumstances, and there are ways that might feel less healthy and work less. But there is no morally absolute, perfect form of relationship. That's reason number one. Secondly, If we look at biblical scripture, we'll see a wide range and variety of seemingly accepted relational norms. For example, monogamy is highlighted in the story of Adam and Eve, while polygamy is highlighted in the stories of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, or Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, 
or King Saul and King David, and you get the picture. Sometimes divorce is forbidden in biblical scripture. Sometimes it's allowed in certain circumstances. Sometimes men are supposed to lead women like in Ephesians, but sometimes women end up leading men like in the story of Deborah or Abigail or the story. Look, you get the point. There are other examples, a a multiplicity of examples of relational styles and methods and norms, even throughout scripture. So this bolsters my main point and my main argument that there's no one size fits all model for healthy relationships, even by biblical standards. So what do I think we need to do? Well, I think we need to expand our vision a little bit. But how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've broken it down into four simple bullet points that will change your life. No, 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 not really. I mean, sort of, but not really. Because look, I am not a relationship expert. I've been in long-term relationships. I've been married. I've been divorced. I've been navigating co-parenting. I've been navigating a blended family. So like... I have my own set of lived experiences, and I have the research I've done, the reading I've done, but I would not call myself an expert. But the things I want to share with you do feel like nuggets I've picked up along the way that if we all generally applied them uh, more regularly, we would see some improvement in our relationships and with our general sense of well-being. So that's the spirit with which I'm offering them. Take whatever resonates and leave whatever doesn't, okay? So if we're thinking about how we expand our vision, I think we need to be curious. We've got to be curious about ourselves, our partners, and our relationships. Maybe that means asking, okay, what's working here or what isn't working? What do I need? What do you need? Where do you see us heading? What do I want that I'm not receiving? What do I need from you and what can I get somewhere else? Just take some time and start allowing yourself to ask the questions that maybe you've been ignoring or avoiding for a while. And these don't have to be earth-shattering questions. Maybe you haven't asked your partner, hey, how are you feeling about this? Or maybe you haven't asked yourself, ooh, what are my deepest needs right now? Sometimes those simple questions, I guess that last one wasn't that simple, but you know what I mean. Sometimes uh, the right question, no matter how simple or complex it seems, is a great starting place. So you don't have to be asking questions that assume something's wrong in your relationship, but just add some more curiosity into your life, into your own internal world, and into your relational dynamic, and see what happens. The second thing I would invite us to do is to have better communication. And this is, I mean... You can talk to any relationship expert and this will come up. So it seems like a no-brainer, but it's worth mentioning. We need to pull back the veil and let each other in a bit more. And y'all, I gotta be real, this one's tough for me. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at, you know, explaining what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling, but in terms of letting people into the experience of that, in terms of being vulnerable enough to like let myself cry with someone else, I'm not great at that yet. And so this is a growing edge for me. So there are different levels of communication, right? So sometimes being a better communicator means doing what I just said, talking more, right? It just means being able to share how your day was more often or being able to talk about your feelings better. And that's really hard for some of us to do. But good communication can also just mean crying in someone's arms. 
It can mean sitting in silence together as you hold the weight of life. It can mean more phone calls or more letter writing to each other, and it most definitely means listening with the intention to hear and understand more. Regardless of what improving your communication means for you, take some time and try to actively bring more communication into your relational dynamic. Or if you're not in a relationship, just be more communicative with yourself. See, we can talk to ourselves all day long. We can journal. We can write letters to ourselves or other people that never get delivered. Communication doesn't just have to involve someone else. Sometimes, and and those of you that uh, have experienced a lot of trauma and are in therapy, you'll know what I'm talking about here. There are parts of ourselves that need to be in communication with each other in order for us to heal. And so sometimes the most important, most immediate communication work happens internally. And this brings me to my next point. Y'all, we got to be doing our inner work. In my opinion, this is the single most important uh, bullet point in this list. We need to be willing to face ourselves as we are. Because the greatest test of love is loving yourself. Actually, it's deeper than that. It's loving yourself enough to want what is best for you. And what's best for you doesn't always feel good in the short term. Now, for me, this has meant being in therapy. It's meant... Having friends who will tell me about myself when I don't want to hear it. And it's meant sitting in my grief and just weeping sometimes. It's also meant being honest about my intentions, my self-deception, and the unhealthy patterns that I perpetuate. And being honest with myself, looking myself in the face, calling myself on all my BS isn't easy. I'm not always great at it. That's why I need my therapist. That's why I need friends, family, and loved ones. But... This work has been crucial to figuring out how to be in healthy relational dynamics and patterns. Because I can't be in a healthy relationship with anyone else if I'm not first in a healthy relationship with myself. And that inner work is the process of becoming, or rather of being in healthier and healthier relationship with all the parts of me that I've been neglecting or avoiding over the years. So this inner work is crucial. Finally, I believe we need a willingness to be flexible. Because here's the thing, y'all. We change constantly. The relationship norms that work for you when you're 20 or 21 won't work the same way when you're 50 or 51. And if we're curious with each other, communicating regularly and participating in our own inner healing, I believe we'll be in a position to uncover the ways that our relationships might need to shift and respond with some flexibility instead of being rigid and immovable. Change does mean you're going to lose something. You'll, You'll need to give something up, which is why we're so quick to resist it. But there can also be great gain with change. So the next time you're met with an invitation to be flexible or to change, instead of focusing only on what you're going to lose and how much that sucks, ask yourself, what might I gain from this shift? What new privilege or opportunity might this flexibility afford me? And maybe that question, maybe that that change in your frame of reference will be enough to help you walk into a new blessing, a new way of being, a new opportunity for growth that you might have otherwise missed. So in short, I think we need to be more curious with ourselves and with one another. I think we need to improve on all the ways that we communicate. 
We've got to prioritize our inner work above almost everything else. And we need to be flexible. In a way, I would invite you to slow down. I would invite you to pause and ask what's coming up for you. Ask who you can be in conversation with as a trusted voice that might help you navigate what's coming up. And it doesn't mean that you might not reach the conclusion that your relationship that you're currently in isn't working for you. That's definitely possible. But even if you do reach that conclusion, I think if, if we can get there in a, a way that feels uh, paced healthily, what am I saying? All right, so we've covered a lot today. Um, and before I leave you, though, I, I want to just say one thing. As I've invited us into a rethinking and reevaluating of the norms and beliefs we hold around relationships, I really want to name that I'm not suggesting you have to throw everything out. I'm not suggesting that if you've been in a long-term heterosexual monogamous relationship, you've got to just scrap everything and end it. In fact, if that's the conclusion you've come to after listening to this podcast, I'm going to invite you to pause and to do some deeper reflection about what's coming up. What I am saying, though, is that it's possible that as a result of doing this work, of asking questions of yourself and your partner, of rethinking your expectations and your norms, and by opening yourself up, you might realize something about your relationship with yourself, something about the narratives you hold about about what relationships should or could be, or something about your current relationship just isn't quite working. And that's okay. Because this work won't always feel comfortable. It won't always feel easy. But by being honest with ourselves, we are granting ourselves and anyone we're in partnership with the opportunity and the privilege to find the way forward together. All right, y'all. We spent a lot of time unpacking relational norms, evaluating what is and isn't acceptable or typical and then inviting some curiosity, some communication, some inner work, and some flexibility into our relationships. So after all this time, I think we've begun to answer the question, what would it take to make our relationships work? Now, if you're still hungry for more, you're in luck because there'll be a part two to this episode in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. I really appreciate your support. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.